Hi, this is Alec Baldwin, and you're tuned to WBAI, listener-supported, non-commercial radio in New York. Anything can happen. Support WBAI, Peace and Justice Radio in New York. Transmitting live from the top of the Empire State Building on WBAI, 99.5 FM, Pacifica Radio, New York. This is Trump Watch, The First Hundred Days, a weekly series investigating the actions of and reactions to President Donald J. Trump and his administration. Hello and welcome to Trump Watch the First Hundred Days. I'm Jesse Lent. On the show this evening, we'll be discussing the Trump administration's policy on North Korea with Oriana Schuyler Mastro, an assistant professor at Georgetown University. We spoke yesterday. According to the New York Times, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, currently in Moscow, spent most of today waiting to speak to Russian President Vladimir Putin. When the two men finally sat down for their two-hour meeting, it was 6 p.m. local time. And while a substantial portion of the meeting was likely to focus on Russian support of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, who's currently accused of the U.S. and its allies of using sarin gas to kill his own people in what all evidence appears to reveal as a textbook example of a war crime, and President Trump's airstrike last week on a Syrian airfield in response. Another topic that was reportedly on the table, though, is the escalating situation in the Korean Peninsula, as North Korea conducted yet another missile test last month. Currently, the USS Carl Vinson Aircraft Carrier Strike Group has been deployed to the region, and 150,000 Chinese troops have reportedly been stationed near the North Korean border following the U.S. attack on Syria. Here to offer some insight into the current state of relations between the U.S. and North Korea, as well as discuss some of her own research into the Chinese effort to dismantle the North Korean nuclear weapons arsenal, is Oriana Schuyler Mastro, an assistant professor of security studies at Georgetown University. Her work has been featured in The Atlantic, The New Republic, and the Journal of Strategic Studies. Hello, Oriana. Thank you so much for joining me. Of course. I'm happy to be here. Let's start with offering our listeners a bit of quick historical context for this discussion. Korea was divided into two nations in 1945 at the end of World War II after reunification negotiations failed and North Korea's attempt to invade the South led to the Korean War in 1953. The two countries have been in their own type of Cold War ever since with a highly fortified demilitarized zone, or DMZ, of 160 miles, splitting Korea in two. While South Korea functions, for the most part, as a democratic capitalist society, North Korea has become increasingly more isolated over the years, with the country's despotic current leader, Kim Jong-un, or supreme leader of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, as he's known there, reportedly ordering his own advisors to be murdered out of fear of disloyalty, and starving his own people in search of a long-range nuclear weapon capable of reaching the California coast. Uh, Recent weapons tests appear to demonstrate that Kim has the weapon, but not the distance to carry it across the Pacific. First of all, is there anything you'd like to add or correct in that little 30-second version of Korean history? And 
also, what other historical context do you think is necessary to offer here at the top? Wow. So um, that was a very good, I guess, overview uh, of the current situation on the peninsula. I would just add, since you're interested in nuclear issues, some nuances to the assessment that you made that North Korea has been relatively successful in this program of developing nuclear weapons. Uh, North Korea unilaterally withdrew from the Treaty on Nonproliferation of Nuclear Weapons in January 2003, which you know, was its right to do so. And after it withdrew from the NPT, it has since uh, had a very active nuclear weapons program and has tested nuclear explosive devices in 2006, 2009, 2013, and then twice in 2016. The, the point you made about you know, what is their actual capability in order to be able to deliver a nuclear weapon, you not only have to have a nuclear weapon, you also have to successfully miniaturize that weapon to fit it onto a delivery platform, and then you also have to be able uh, to actually deliver it. So when we hear in the news about missile tests, for example, which is what uh, some of the tests have been most recently, that is about North Korea trying to develop this delivery platform. But uh, most scientists and estimates would say that uh, that North Korea is still a long way off from being able to field an intercontinental ballistic missile fitted with a nuclear warhead. We're still about five to ten years uh, from that eventuality. But obviously, North Korea has shown that they want to develop this system. Uh, and so that's what the primary concern is right now for the United States. I've heard sort of varying reports on this, you know, so, some people repeating what you said five to ten years. But other people, uh, other experts claiming this threat is is more urgent. I, something that I myself have wondered is with with the the drone technology getting to uh, advancing so quickly uh, would that be something that would enable Kim, if he has the nuclear capability, to put this on one of these newer uh, legal drones? Right. So the most important thing uh, for delivery, I think, is the reliability of the platform. And also the ability, that reliability has to do also with the defensive measures of states that potentially you're targeting. So the reason why uh, during the Cold War, for example, you know, the United States and the Soviet Union uh, developed the technology to build uh, ballistic missiles and that North Korea is also trying to go this route of the ballistic missile route is because it's a more reliable delivery system. It's harder for air defenses to defeat an incoming ballistic missile than for uh, a standard sort of aircraft platform. And so it's unlikely, I think, that North Korea is going to go that route. You're right, like technologically it's easier, but it's also much easier for the United States uh, to locate and, you know, shoot down the UAV than an incoming ballistic missile. That's a really interesting point. What would be the bar um, that North Korea would have to clear in order to put this into a uh, transportation m- mechanism that wouldn't be detected by U.S. radar or other detection systems? So the thing with ballistic missiles is it's not so much an issue of detection. It's an issue of the the sort of speed and velocity in which the ballistic missile is re-entry into the atmosphere that makes it difficult to uh, shoot. So this is why, for example, uh, 
you might hear people discuss an option of destroying a ballistic missile on the launch platform. This is called hitting it kind of in the boost phase because you know where it is before it's launched. It's very easy to uh, destroy a missile, but that's obviously extremely dangerous. Preventative, you're attacking a country, not really sure. Maybe they're just bringing those missiles out and uh, in order to demonstrate uh, force, maybe there's nothing on it. Uh, and so that's why we don't really like that as the only option of actually attacking it when it's on on the ground. Um, but in general, the, the issue is that uh, we are not sure how far Korea, North Korea is in this process. For example, they had a failed test of one of their missiles, a medium-range missile, you know, March on March 22nd, and the reason for that failure is still kind of up in the air. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about where their issues lie. So this is probably why there's also a debate about, you know, how long will it be until North Korea masters this technology if, if they manage to master it. It's because we really are unclear about where their hurdles currently. And this is all being done by aerial surveillance, what we know of the tests? Because obviously we can't go into the country and collect any of the materials, right? So that's a very good point. Um, I, I can't, I'm not sure, I can't really comment on the exact methods through which uh, countries like the United States, also South Korea, are trying to learn about uh, these tests um, and confirm, for example, the yield of devices as well as the success or failure missile tests. But you, you brought up a point with that, which is we only have kind of external mechanisms because we we don't have any access to the country. And to me, this is uh, the biggest problem associated with dealing with North Korea's nuclear uh, weapons program. Just recently, um, you know, President Trump and then Mr. Tillerson comments that uh, all options are on the table when it comes to North Korea. But actually, that's not true because they mean... Uh, on the balance between force and diplomacy, uh, more force options are on the table. But this president and President uh, President Obama, to be fair, they didn't consider the range of diplomatic options available. Um, and I'm not talking about sort of just sitting down and thinking through discussion. You can convince North Korea to think of their nuclear weapons. I'm talking about this access issue. We would understand the program uh, much more deeply, as well as the players and their incentives, if we had people on the ground. And that includes things like being willing to talk bilaterally with North Korea and potentially even opening up relations with North Korea. To me, that's the way forward that is not being considered, that given the repercussions of a war in the peninsula, uh, that should be considered a lot more seriously. On Monday, it was reported that the U.S. Navy has moved the USS Carl Vinson aircraft carrier strike group from Singapore to North Korea. Uh, North Korean spokesman reportedly responded by saying the country is, quote, ready to react to any mode of war desired by the U.S. What do you think is the likely, likely outcome of this uh, most recent showdown between the U.S. and North Korea? No, interesting is that up until now, the big debate has always been about the rationality and strategic calculus of Kim himself. What are the conditions under which Kim might potentially launch a preventive war or do some provocations against South Korea? But now we have this additional uncertainty, which is President Trump. And it's not only sort of the unpredictability or you know, his quote-unquote strength or willingness to use force, but there's I'm generally uncertain about how much he understands the operational environment on the Korean Peninsula, and this is very concerning to me. Um, so 
there is a possibility always that you have an escalation, but what I'm thinking is most likely going to happen, what I hope uh, will happen, is that someone uh, sits down, hopefully he is now more willing to receive briefings from the intel community uh, and other people in the military who he does tend uh, to listen to, and he'll get an operational picture about what our military options are on the peninsula. And they're not good. And also, you know, the, the carrier strike group doesn't have a very strong role in what is predicted to be mainly a ground and uh, air campaign, hopefully conventional, potentially not on the Korean Peninsula. So the moving of the carrier strike group, you know, that was a way to demonstrate, I guess, U.S. resolve. Uh, but in my experience, especially Chinese, if the United States finds it necessary to make demonstrations, it actually has the opposite effect. Instead of showing uh, countries that the United States is willing to use this asset, what it does is say, I'm only willing to kind of dance around with it. And so uh, I think the understanding that moving that carrier strike group really reveals the limited military options that the United States has available is the correct assessment of that situation. Do you think President Trump's military response on Thursday to Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's use of chemical weapons on his own people, uh, authorizing 59 Tomahawk missiles to be fired from American destroyers in the eastern Mediterranean at the al-Shirat airfield in Syria, has changed the way the U.S. is perceived by Kim Jong-un's regime? It's hard for me to get into the mind of Kim. What I can say is, I don't think it has had the effect on uh, Kim's thinking or, perhaps more importantly, on Chinese leader Xi Jinping's thinking that President Trump probably expects. And so from, I think President Trump's perspective was to demonstrate, obviously, not only uh, because of the chemical weapons he's in Syria, but just generally the desire to demonstrate a U.S. reputation for resolve and strength. Right, a new, some people are calling it a new Trump doctrine, that he is going to be more willing to use force uh, to show his discontent than his predecessors. However, this again is just, a, there's a big difference between demonstration of resolve and actual military operations. And so just because the United States is willing to shoot 59 you know, Tomahawk cruise missiles, uh, from a position in which U.S. forces are basically, uh, you know, completely safe and not vulnerable to any repercussions, does not demonstrate a willingness to ab absorb costs uh, on the Korean Peninsula because there is no situation. The operational environment is so different that there is no situation under which uh, U.S. forces, either on the ground, air, or sea, can operate with impunity. And so it does show, yes, that he's, you know, willing to blow things up, but I don't think uh, it shows uh, really what the, what's on the table. The big question is about the United States' willingness to absorb costs, whether they be economic, but also costs in terms of casualty of U.S. military personnel. And uh, that limited uh, strike in Syria does not give us any insight into the president's thinking on those critical issues. Earlier this week, the Chinese army sent 150,000 troops to the North Korean border, reportedly as a response to the U.S. airstrikes in Syria. Do you believe the Chinese government uh, is thinking that the U.S. is more likely to attack North Korea because of what happened in Syria? I think the Chinese are concerned about both parties. While in the United States, we look primarily at North Korea's cycle of provocation, in Beijing, they blame the escalation on both the United States and North Korea and consider both parties to sometimes 
uh, be somewhat maybe irrational or be responding in ways to show strength or to save face. Um, this is something that was just uh, written in the Chinese media, for example, about Pre uh, President Trump's use uh, of missiles in Syria. Uh, the main uh, thing they're writing is it's basically that President Trump wants to save face in front of a domestic political audience. So from the Chinese perspective, they feel like it's difficult for them to uh, impose caution on North Korea. It's difficult for them to impose caution on the United States. And so they're preparing themselves for any contingency, regardless of who starts it, that leads to instability on the peninsula, so that they will be poised not only to protect uh, Chinese territory, but also potentially to get involved so that they will have a seat at the table when determining what a post-conflict uh, settlement will look like to ensure that a future Korean peninsula is one that is designed uh, in a way that is favorable to Chinese interests. Can you talk a little bit about your work studying Chinese nuclear deterrence in North Korea? What's something that you're seeing in this most recent showdown, other than what you just described, that someone without your experience and expertise wouldn't see? So the one thing that I see is a change in Beijing about how they think about North Korea. And I think a lot of this change is not being captured in the United States media and potentially not in the government. So what you'll hear a lot about when you think about the Chinese role, you'll hear narratives like uh, China uh, needs to have a buffer state. You'll hear narratives about the concern about refugee flows. You'll hear narratives about how they're an ally of North Korea and don't want to see uh, that regime come to an end. Those are narratives that were relevant for most of history, but that are a good 10 years old now. Chinese thinking has evolved significantly as its capabilities have evolved in tandem. So when you go back to the buffer state issue, for example, or that China and North Korea allies, Xi Jinping has never met with Kim. Uh, it's very common knowledge in China that the Chinese, and especially the current leader, uh, they loathe the North Koreans. These are not partners and friends. Um, when I talk to people in China about contingencies on the Korean Peninsula and whether China would get involved, the Chinese military articulate to me an understanding, actually, that they would not be invited in by the North Koreans, but they themselves would fight their way in. They would have to fight the North Koreans from the north to enter onto the peninsula. And so when we're thinking about the relationship between these two, it's not one in which China cares about the future of North Korea. Fundamentally, they care about uh, the future of the Korean Peninsula, and specifically the U.S. role on the peninsula. So when you say that China needs a buffer state, they need a buffer state against the United States. But if the United States is not there, then they don't need a buffer state anymore. So the Chinese talk a lot about um, reunification of the peninsula. There is much more open discussion within China about a future without North Korea. That's not problematic for China. What's problematic is that that future includes a reunified peninsula in which U.S. military forces are still present and or expanding even farther north. Uh, moreover, you know, this refugee issue is, is still of concern in Beijing, but I think much more so than that um, has to do with Xi Jinping's thought process about the role of China in the region, and that is a role of a regional hegemon. Um, when I ask people in Beijing, would China get involved if there was a contingency on the peninsula, the response I get often uh, especially from the military, but also from scholars, from government officials, is 
well, if the United States is there, why wouldn't we be there? To view that China has a stronger role to play in this region. And so I think those are the factors that are really driving China. It's the idea that no one has, including the United States, haven't really presented an alternative future to, the, to China that is better than the current one. But I'm convinced that if the United States met with China or somehow convinced the Chinese that if North Korea did not exist tomorrow, the United States military would disengage from the peninsula, then then you would see China without U.S. pressure, even you know unilaterally uh, putting much pressure on the on the regime and per- potentially even ensuring the collapse of that regime itself. But you know we always complain that the Chinese are unwilling to talk to us about Korea, North Korea. But the United States is also unwilling to talk about the future of the Korean Peninsula without its ally, South Korea. Right? Our position is, you know, we're not willing to leave the peninsula until our South Korean allies ask us to. Uh, so as long as the United States is unwilling to kind of think about uh, Chinese broader interests in the region, it's not really uh, in China's interest to help lead to a future that only strengthens the U.S. role in the region. But from North Korea's perspective... China's their number one trading partner, right? And they also rely on China for aid. That relationship is much more important. Does that put China in a rare position to negotiate with North Korea about things, say, like their nuclear program? So you are correct. China accounts for about 90% of North Korea's trade, and it's its major supplier of oil. And from the outside, it looks like, yes, that should provide China with a great deal of economic leverage. The problem is that the benefits of that relationship are uh, bilateral. And that any threats uh, from the Chinese perspective to cut off that trade are not going to be credible to North Korea. So there's a lot of examples of this historically. Um, I just finished working on a book about uh, how leaders decide whether to talk to their enemies during wars. And one thing I look at is uh, whether or not a player relies on an ally or partner for support. And even in the heyday of the Cold War, uh, when countries are fighting for national survival, you know, like the North Vietnamese fighting the United States, when you look at internal discussions, which we can't do with North Korea, so I'm kind of using other historical examples, but when you look at internal discussions, for example, the North Vietnamese discussing going against Chinese or Soviet wishes, and are they afraid that this will lead to sort of cut off of support? The leadership comes to the determination that the Chinese are and the Soviets are helping them, not you know for their for the sake of North Vietnam, they're helping them for their own national interests. And so, whatever threat to sort of cut off any support and fighting the Americans is not credible. I imagine this is kind of what North Korea is thinking about it, because they're kind of in the same boat as long as China believes that the end of North Korea means the expansion of uh, U.S. military presence, then uh, then any threats to use that economic, uh, those economic ties as leverage is not going to be credible. China is going to need that regime there just as much as, you know, the GPRK wants to remain there. And just as a side note, I would say that I see the Chinese perspective of these economic uh, economic sanctions pressuring North Korea from the outside uh, through reducing their uh, access to certain uh, economic benefits. We've tried that before, and people argue maybe we haven't, you know, gone far enough 
but I don't really see that as convincing Kim to give up his nuclear weapons program. I, I somewhat buy the Chinese argument that part of that development is driven by threat protections of North Korea. And so that if the United States wants to shape the decision about whether or not Kim needs nuclear weapons, they have to shape things like uh, how Kim views the United States as a threat, but also prestige. If Kim still has to gain prestige from this program, is there ways that the United States can give him prestige to other means? And I think that's a really low-hanging fruit. That's easy. Uh, anything involving bilateral relations, talk between the United States and, and North Korea would give Kim that prestige that he so craves. And that's why the United States refuses to do it. But in my mind, you know, it, it's a very, very low rhetorical cost. Uh, and that's totally worth it if we're going to be able to avoid uh, a regime capable of delivering a nuclear warhead to, as you as you said, the west coast of the United States. So who cares if by meeting with Kim, uh, he feels special and he feels uh, empowered and he can go to all of his friends and say, look at how important I am. I mean, to me, the United States is a strong country, but we're acting very weak by being concerned about a lot of these image factors. Only the weak have to be concerned about looking weak. The strong are strong, and therefore, um, you know, they have less repercussions associated with weakness. But I think we have a lot more leeway in how we deal with Kim than we currently are trying to think about. And, and I would just encourage President Trump, who likes to think, you know, that he is a disruptive president, that he would do things that no other president would do before him. Contemplating force in the Korean Peninsula is something that every president has considered before him. Uh, so that is not really a, a new approach. Uh, something like meeting with Kim directly, you know, giving each other, maybe, you know, Kim could come to the United States and see a tour of all of Trump's palaces, and then Trump could go to Kim uh, and see a tour of all of his palaces. They could talk about, like, the statues that they want to erect and, like, how much, you know, the media lies and, you know, portrays them in ways that are unfavorable and how the whole world is against them. I think that, you know, that would give Kim the prestige he needs to consider stopping this nuclear weapons program. And, and people will say, well, that, you know, that sounds ridiculous. But, you know, in my mind, we haven't tried that, right? So how ridiculous that is, I'm not sure. But we have tried the military coercion. We have tried the economic pressure. So we know that that doesn't work. So it's, it's about time that we start trying things, regardless of how out of the box that they seem, um, that at least have the possibility of success. Thank you so much. My guest has been Oriana Schuyler Mastro, an assistant professor of security studies at Georgetown University. You're listening to Trump Watch the First 100 Days on WBAI 99.5 FM Pacifica Radio in New York. I'm Jesse Lent. That's going to do it for this week. One quick announcement before we go. Trump Watch with Jesse Lent is now available as an iTunes podcast. Find us in the iTunes store, the podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also stream or download all 17 previous episodes of Trump Watch at our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com, so, I'm sorry, soundcloud.com slash trumpwatchwbai, or in the WBAI archives at wbai.org. You can keep the conversation going on Twitter using the hashtag TrumpWatchWBAI, or follow me at the handle JLentNews. You can also contact me directly at the email address jesse at wbai.org. 
Tell me what issues you'd like us to cover on this show. I always love to hear from our listeners. Again, my email is jesse at wbai.org. Stay tuned for a special live taping of the Katie Halper Show coming up at 7 when Katie's guest will be Matt Carp. And I'll be back next Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. when we'll break down another aspect of the Donald Trump administration. I'm your host, Jesse Lent. Talk to you next time.